0: I think we may be. PBD? First We're name. Live. Okay, sounds good. Adam, Tom, Patrick, and a special guest today. Uh, you know the word, when people drop the word legendary, and you know, I'd be, oh, he's such a legend. Yeah. Right? And we drop that loosely. Today's guest is a person that will be uh, full-on qualified as a legend. couple things you need to know with our guest today, Oliver Stone. We uh, may uh, odds, odds are you have seen, you've seen, probably a handful of his work. Let me kind of walk through a couple of them and then you tell me. He was a writer for Midnight Express, okay? Writer for Conan the Barbarian. Writer for The Scarface, if you've ever seen Scarface with Pacino. Uh, You're the Dragon. Platoon, he was a writer and director. Wall Street, writer and director. Born on 4th of July, writer, director, producer. JFK, the movie with Kevin Costner, writer, director, producer. Let me continue. Natural Born Killers, writer and uh, director, Nixon, writer, director, producer, Avita, Any Given Sunday, Alexander, do you want me to keep going, World Mm -hmm. Trade Center, W, Wall Street, Money Never Sleep, Savages, Snowden. He's done three documentaries, I believe, on Castro. He had a uh, uh, four-episode interview, it was 57, 58 minutes each, with Putin that came out with Showtime years ago. Good for Showtime for actually doing that. Ukraine on Fire, which I recently watched, and he's got a book. Uh, that uh, somebody I just had a chance to meet out there who's uh, uh, got the right credibility to say this. She says this may be one of the best books she's ever read. If we can put this up, uh, up there as well so everybody can see it. It's called Chasing the Light, Writing, Directing, Surviving Platoon, Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador, and a movie game, Oliver Stone, Chasing the Light. Let's put the link below for people to order as well. Having said that... Oliver Stone, thank you so much for being a guest.
1: Thank you, Patrick. It's, it's, it's a nice introduction. Yes, it's uh, great to have you on. Yeah. I also did an interview. I also did a documentary, a big one with uh, Hugo Chavez. You forgot him. Oh, I forgot that one. But <laughs> if, if I
0: cover all of them, I mean, your, your resume is... And right. by the way, here's what's crazy about it. Everything you're saying here on top of this, like the stuff that really matters with life, you could have avoided going to Vietnam, you didn't. Yeah. I think you were a school teacher in Saigon. I, I want to yeah. say if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, uh, you know your upbringing, how you were raised with your father and then you know finances, the debt and his philosophies, and it kind of led you to your own. You went to Yale a year later, you dropped out. I mean, you know you you have a very rich life. You know We sometimes see the final product, but the coming up to it is yeah. what's really interesting. Do you mind taking a uh, a moment and sharing with the audience before Oliver Stone became Oliver
1: Stone that we know about? Who was Oliver Stone? A conforming, uh, scared, uh, young student in school. Didn't want to get into trouble. Uh, Went to boarding school, tried to behave. Uh, The wild streak was from my mother, and it was in me, but it was buried, and took some time to come out. Because I didn't know what I, I was an only child, so I you have to figure it out step by step. As you know, it's not you don't have an older brother or older sister to, to teach you the ways of the world. I, I had to I had to bump into the furniture to to find my my path. And I I suppose it started with their divorce when I was sixteen. That was pretty. I thought they were the happiest couple in the world. They were so so beautiful together. My father was, I thought he was rich. He was, he was on Wall Street, and they had a a beautiful marriage. She was French, and he was American. He met her in World War II during the war, on the street, in the street in Paris. He picked her up on a street corner. Not that she she was, not that she was a hooker, she was on a bicycle, and he stopped her. Thank you for clarifying that, Mr. Stone. (laughs) And he was, anyway, uh, that divorce set me on a path of aloneness, because my family life with three people, it disintegrates when you don't have your... your. So I went off to boarding school, and then from there to uh, Saigon, no, to Yale, and at Yale, I, I I was not happy there. It was the same environment as a boarding school, and I found that the entire socioeconomic drift of the of the college was towards Wall Street, towards capitalism, towards competitiveness, competitiveness, uh, it was not an added... You know, put it this way. In my class at Yale was George Bush, okay? George Bush was a C student at Yale, and he admits it, uh, but he was entitled. And that was a sense of entitlement that I saw in boarding school and many people, and also in at Yale. So it, there were no women at that point either. Mm. It was... I dropped out. I dropped out and went to teach, as you say, in Saigon, in Cholon, actually, to uh, Chinese, uh, Vietnamese Chinese students, Uh, huge classes. I taught for two semesters, and it was a fascinating experience to be there and living in the back alleys and getting used to a country I didn't know. I didn't know a soul there, so it was, for me, an eye-opening experience. Came back. Eventually, in the Merchant Marine, I was a a wiper. I went on, I joined, I always wanted to go to sea, so I joined as a wiper. They allowed me to go, not as a union, because you can get a card when, they, when the, these ships were going over to Saigon, they were losing the crews because the guys were jumping crews to mm-hmm. make money in Saigon. There was a lot of money to be made in combat zones. So people were jumping ship. And I, went, I sailed back on an empty ship to Coos Bay, Oregon. And then I, I, I uh, re-enrolled uh, at Yale, out to Yale for my sophomore year, dropped out a second time.
0: Dropped out a second time. Second so time. So one time yeah, wasn't enough. Flunked
1: out a second time. <laughs> okay, got and it. I really was, it was clear that I had no future here. And I, I cut out on my own, wrote a book called Child's Night Dream, which was finally published in 1997 by uh, St. Martin's. Uh, and it's a very, very much a 19-year-old's book. Very much written in a very romantic, uh, it's embarrassing. I mean, but I put it out the way it was written. I, when I made some edits but I, I just wanted it to be in the voice of an authentic nineteen year old. Because we don't listen to nineteen year olds. We don't listen to young people. Young people have problems. Some of them are very suicidal, as mm. you know. And and I want and I confront these these nightmares. I had them.
2: You were uh, having suicidal thoughts at nineteen. Oh yeah. yeah really?
1: Yeah, very much so. Yeah, due you know, to the divorce. This is before the war. Right. <laughs> the divorce was sixteen. But see, that's three so years that's later. what I'm saying. Yeah. Was it you due know, to the divorce, divorce and alienation? Everything. I didn't know what to do in my life. I was lost, really lost. Which is, I'm trying to explain why I actually volunteered to go to this Vietnam combat because it was the only. There was nothing else for me. It was the way to maybe solve this issue. If I was going to off myself, I didn't want to do it. It would be done. Perhaps for me by the forces you know in Vietnam. Wow. So I was willing to you know willing to die. I thought when I got there, of course, it, you know after infantry training, I got pretty. I got put into the 25th Infantry and in uh, September '67. So it was right as the war was getting to its hottest point. And I I served in th- three different units. I ended up at the First Cavalry because I got wounded twice in the 25th. I went through the all the stuff in Saigon then I went up to An Kai and then I moved on to Camp Evans in Quang Tri province so I had quite a bit of experience there and saw saw a fair share of combat and uh, came back to the states as disillusioned I suppose very disillusioned I realized I wanted to live because I didn't want to, I didn't I saw a lot of death and I didn't want to die uh, uh you you said something earlier to me before we talked about the uh, Viet, when I said something about Vietnam mm-hmm. I came back deadened deadened numb mm. I didn't know who I was what I was I was uh, totally uh, it's a problem for returning veterans as you know in any war any place you don't our society was not geared to war our society people were not enlisting or volunteering by any means most people were avoiding it in my class mm-hmm. uh, at yale and and hill school all of these people were, most of them were not going there it was considered it, it, that was for uh, poor people right and that really, that bothered me so i got my first real strong experience of living with the call it the lower class americans but they were really good people and i had had much there were many good people there and at the same time, I got to know our black population pretty pretty well because I found them to be very powerful in my experience there. They, uh, in a way, they they helped keep me alive, kept me human. The music, going back to the base camp, smoking dope, that kind of stuff in the rear is very important and keeps you mm-hmm. it keeps you human. And uh, I have discovered soul music, and it was just a good relationships. Whereas some other people have problems over there. They they. You can let war. You can let war finish you off. It makes you very callous, very callous. It was a racist war in the sense. Yeah, many many of us mistreated the Vietnamese. Didn't look. Didn't respect them at all.
2: The soldiers, you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. So and that was. A, you see that overall in our attitudes towards third world people, and uh, I saw a lot of that. I didn't like it at all. So. I'm giving you a long narrative. No, this is. Here. I wrote a book about it. It's called uh, "Chasing the Light," and I, about my first 40 years. And I, 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 told that story because Vietnam plays a huge role in in America's destiny, which is where I'm going to go to in the in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. My father being a Republican, uh, being pro-Vietnam at one point, uh, very much. He was an intelligent man. He wasn't. A, he was an economist, a Wall Street man. He, uh, he, he was very passionate in his views, and he stated them publicly. He was a writer, and today, among other things, he, was, he wrote a monthly, monthly investment letter for his firm, and it was a very popular letter. So he was given the gift of expression. He was a very good writer. I admired him. Didn't agree with him. We fought like dog and cat after the war because he, he didn't really respect Vietnam. He, to him, World War II was the war. He was a lieutenant colonel. You understand the dichotomy. And here I was, a pot-smoking, long-haired, hippie type coming back from this war. But I wasn't a hippie. I was just a screwed-up veteran, you know? So after a long period of drugs and this and that, I ended up back at NYU on the GI Bill, which is where uh, I went to film school. And because what else, you know, what else could I do? Didn't have any skills except how to how to fire a rifle how to how to build a fire, how to live outdoors in the jungle that was one, those were my skills. So I went to uh, school for the for two years. Uh, Marty Scorsese was the youngest teacher there. I had him in a class, and he was very very he moved me I'm lo- I, all the teachers were very good. The school was very sharp learned a lot. Wait, how much? How much for you want me to go? No, like,
0: keep. keep yeah. I'm actually very interested. Please continue. I'm actually very interested. Martin Scorsese a, was your po-
2: teacher at NYU. You were saying,
0: Marty was a te- yeah. He was a young, uh, cra- I want to know to the teacher. point of first movie. Like I want to know to the point of your first big movie and then winning uh,
1: uh, an award for Midnight. at... Uh, oh, yeah. well, that's a few years ahead. I had to go through a lot of, to, a lot of uh, rejection. From film school. I mean, you come out of film school. I, was driving, I drove a taxi in New York uh, because that was there, there was no jobs for film. It wasn't younger people were not yet accepted the way they have been since uh, it was tough. Uh, I drove a taxi. It was a messenger. I was working in all- temp jobs that I could get. Uh, and I was writing. I, I kept writing. Remember I' written a novel, so I kept writing screenplays. My first screenplay, 69 and it's a crazy it reads crazy but it's part of the development of a writer you have to go through all these i wrote 8 9 10 maybe 11 screenplays over those next 6 7 years and all of them were rejected although two of them were finally optioned, and that led to some kind of light uh, in in hollywood i started to meet some people just off the options i Ma- had married a lebanese woman uh, who was very beautiful and well, had a job at the UN. So I was. She was helping me. Uh, uh, I was living in her apartment. We were married. And Najwa, Najwa, Lebanese. I'm sure you you know, uh, Christian Lebanese. So uh, I, I moved to Hollywood. We divorced after seven years. Together we, And I moved to Hollywood and started over again. I was very lucky in the sense that my first... I got a job, uh, hired a higher job, to work on Midnight Express, which was a book. Peter, a big, uh, a, a hustling young producer, Peter Guber, at Columbia, wanted to make this movie. And, and of course, the story was fascinating about a, Turk, a boy, an American boy from Long Island, who was busted in Turkey. And for hash, went to jail... For uh, was sentenced to thirty years, but uh, it was a, quite a case, and it went around and around. No, it was first of all he was sentenced for five years, and then he was resentenced for thirty years. Wow. The Turkish uh, system of justice at that time was very strange, uh, and the and the jail was hilarious because if you had money in jail in Turkey, you, you lived like a king, but if you were just part of the foreign riffraff, Peasant. uh you lived pretty badly. Yeah, so uh, you can imagine the contrast. Uh anyway the movie came out and it was a gigantic hit. Uh, it was 1978, 79. And I got an Academy Award. That was the most shocking crazy. Of all. Yeah.
0: But the way to get you know you know what makes you interesting? Um you know sometimes we're uncomfortable to tell our story. It's like look, like, it's not that big of a deal. It's my life. We're you know, we're just telling our life story. Um here's what makes you very unique as an artist and i don't know if the world appreciates you as much as they do and i'll unpack my opinion on how i view you okay um so for somebody to have the amount of life you know acting is what to 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 draw from a certain place you were at in your life to get into that emotion or reacting you know there's different kind of acting but a person who's more well-rounded they can go and explain a scene better because they can go there right so Background, dad, Republican, economist, conservative, then he loses, debt, divorce, you so can draw from what it is to be a father, Republican, conservative, then you experience a kid, divorced, 16 years old, heartbroken, what it is to have that take place, mom, French, so you learn the history of French, because mom's going to pass that down to you, then you go military so you have a little bit of that experience from the military you go to see exactly what's going on in vietnam i mean you draw from that for a movie which leads later on to platoon which i don't know how many times i watched platoon when i was in the army then you're talking about yale to be around people like bush who come from families of strong lineage and they get to go there so you see what parties they can participate in and you can't and how that privileged life is like then being a teacher your compassion for the Afri- african-american black community and then coming up I mean the 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 amount of things you can draw from and you tell the story, we feel it. Meaning we be in the audience. we see your final product. We don't we we see what you're putting together. So it's it's impressive. And one of the things that I appreciate about your work is the fact that look, today we had a doctor here on and we're having a conversation with him and and I remember years ago when I got enamored by JFK and what happened with them. All of a sudden, I'm like, I got to interview. I watch a documentary, JFK, and obviously I've seen a movie. I've seen a lot of that stuff. But last time I'm watching a documentary, and Abraham Bolden, I remember when we interviewed him five years ago, or Clint Hill, or RFK, or, you know, Cyril Wecht. Cyril and I had a phenomenal interview together because I want to know that story. But you also, it, it, this is what it comes across to me. I think young filmmakers who are not afraid, who have audacity, and they, they have the guts to do what an artist ought to do, and, and we ought to let this person do what they're doing is, it seems like you're the kind of guy that if you are looking at Castro, and everybody's saying stuff about Castro, like, look, I don't know what you think. You hate him. You love him. You can't stand him. You could care less about him. I wanted to learn. Yeah. That's what I wanted. I don't want to judge. I want to learn. Okay, you, this Putin guy is a horrible person. Great. Okay, let's say you're right. People from Russia, some of them love him. Some of them hate him. I don't know. I, you know what? I, hey, can we do an interview? I want to learn, right? Hey, this Ukraine thing, everything I hear about with Ukraine, you know, love them, hate them, you know, with the battle of victors and all this other stuff. I don't know. I want to learn. I think the courage you have to go touch some of the subjects that the rest of the world is like, well, Fox News said this, they must be right. CNN said this, they must be right. MSNBC said this, they must be right. New York Post said it, they must be right. New York Times said they must be right. You're like, yeah, I don't know if I believe any one of them. I kind of want to find out for myself. That takes a lot of courage to do what you have you, what you've done. I That's think, what's impressive.
1: I think our stories are similar because what you told me is you came from a very uh, from Syria. Iran, born and raised in but my dad was Iran, a Syrian,
0: yeah. my mother was Armenian.
1: So you've been you've been you're the you're the ultimate too. You're a refugee from those situations and you you're in this country which is a big open freeway in, in many ways and a, f- a marketplace of ideas but you're open and you want to see you want to learn that was what happened to me and I and I'm still on that journey and I'm 75 years old Incredible. I'm still can't, I'd love to know more I'd like to so many people I'd like to meet but it's you know the the rigidity and the orthodoxy is what always close you down they always limit you constantly all my life uh, you know, my father at first, you know, he certainly didn't approve of my my thoughts about the war and this and the, and certainly I started to question economics. You know, he was a big Ro- Franklin Roosevelt. He was not. He was he was there in the 1930s. He was there in the depression. He despised Roosevelt, and I had that m- most of my childhood. But as I got into American history more and more, and really studied it, I went back. Not in school, years later mm-hmm. with um, my project, Untold History of the United States. It's a 12-part history. I think it's—I'm very proud of it. It took five years to put that together with Peter Kuznick, a historian who taught me, had me read the right books and think about American history in a completely different way than I thought of it before. And that's the, the result of that. And, among, and Roosevelt is very much a, a pillar in that movie. And so is John Kennedy. Uh, it becomes be- more and more apparent the more you read about Mr. Kennedy that he was truly in that same tradition of Roosevelt being open-minded to other people, very much as an Irishman, anti-colonial, very much so. Oh, had a much more deeper relationship with Africa, with Indonesia, with South America, and with Nasser in mm-hmm. Egypt than we know. Oh, Nasser was
0: heartbroken when... when yeah, but he, yeah. You
1: know, there was a, he was working very effectively to reestablish American relations with these countries in Sukarno in Indonesia and he was changing the policy in Vietnam unfortunately he didn't live long enough to, to get it done because Lyndon Johnson who was supposed to be his transition was, went in a complete U-turn in a different direction Immediately, which American yeah. historians do not admit so here again this is an interesting we come across orthodoxy in history too and in our thinking and in our media and that's always been my problem coming up against that and being criticized for that, for challenging those views. Is is that because the
0: natural, like, you know how we grow up like the one person you never question is your father that if you eventually were like, I don't know if my dad's right and I'm going to go figure it out for myself, like, that is still with you at 75 where today father may be the president or the government or the media or whatever you're like, there's got to be something more to it. Is that kind of your mindset? There's got to be something more to it than what I'm hearing.
1: Well, my mother is, plays a huge role here because my mother was a rebel, and uh, we haven't talked much about her. She was, uh, she was a rebel. Part of the reason the divorce was what it was is that she rebelled against the system. She didn't want to live inside that box where the man has adult commits adultery all the time and the woman doesn't. So she broke her. She made her own rules up and she had fun. She was quite a liver uh, and a hedonist. She was quite a liver. And a hedonist and m- many friends. She was loved by so many people, I can't tell you. And I think that's a great quality to have opposites as parents. Wow. Uh, not to say my father wasn't funny. He was also very funny, but it, it wasn't like they were... She had a different spirit and rebelled all the time. She had lived through the occupation, Nazi occupation, in Paris in World War Two. So she was... a. Uh, she she really appreciated the freedom uh that after a war uh, and uh a very loving person so she's in my she's in my heart she's always there but uh i take from both of them both parents are very strong L- later on did you ever kind of think and say you
0: know i used to uh not agree with my dad on these two things uh, you know now that I'm 52 years old, this one part that I disagree with my dad, I agree with him. He was right here, and he was right here, and he was wrong there, and she was wrong there, and she was right. Did, did
1: that happen? Yeah, to sure. You? Oh yeah. Which no. was there anything specific? Oh, yeah. in that you, state? People, that's what life is like. My my, my my mother, because of my father, became a, a Republican. She supported you know Reagan and all that, but she didn't really. It was all no it was inside that she was a free spirit. Got it. And totally. Uh, and frankly, uh, John Kennedy, my father was skeptical about him, didn't preferred Nixon, and uh, me too, at that point, it took me a long. You have to learn for yourself that's what the whole point of life is it''s your It's your, it's your path to learn. If you don't change, if you're still the same person you were when you were young, mm-hmm. well, you might like it, but it, it doesn't show that you have tried other states of being. Pat, what's the one thing you always say about?
2: First, you love your parents, then you begin to disagree with them, and then eventually you start to humanize them. What do you always say? It's
0: called idolize, demonize, humanize. Yeah, That's the Mm -hmm. three phases you go through parenting. That's pretty well said. uh, Idolize, uh, demonize, humanize. You know, uh, uh, there's three topics I'd want to touch upon with you. One of them is obviously uh, JFK uh, because, again, I couldn't stop watching that thing. The other thing is a little bit on the Ukraine on fire documentary and your interview with Putin since it's relevant, whatever comments you may have on that. And then a couple other topics before we wrap up. First one being JFK. This is just again selfishly for me. I can't, I, I can't uh, 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 stop reading enough content or studying this guy enough. And you know, you, you look at RFK. Said something very unique in the interview where he says in the documentary where he said uh, there is no man where there is more statues, buildings, streets named after him than Kennedy, JFK. Right now, I've obviously Churchill may be there. A couple other names may be there, but you know, Kennedy being what he did, mm-hmm. but. Why, why, uh, um, why the level of interest in his story? W- what caused you to say, "I really want to investigate the story even more"?
1: Well, history is crucial because if less you know where you came from, you, you don't know where you are. I mean, it becomes, in a sense, America is not really agreed on its history, and that's one of the reasons I did this untold history. We, don't, we have a lot of mythology in our country there's a myth about America there's a myth about America and there are facts and in our history we tried to bring out facts that we don't deal with we don't even know so that's why it's called Untold it's there, it's known but it's been hidden and of course among the, all these many facts is the fact that you know, among others is World War II which is still partly motivating our ideology in the world that there's a Hitler out there and that we're all and we're the defenders of freedom and democracy is a large is 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 also a myth in the sense that we did not win World War II. We had the Russians were the ones who broke their back and took the most casualties and actually tore the guts out of the German war machine. And that, Churchill said so himself. They were the sacrifice. Twenty-seven million people died. Many of them, uh, 8, 10 million, were military. Their their casualties were so much higher than ours, and four-fifths of the German uh, military machine was destroyed on the Eastern Front, one-fifth in the West. So by, by the time D-Day happened mm. in uh, 1944... And we landed, and it's a great big myth. But that, that was that was late in the war. By '43, the war was turning, and early '44, because it was after would, uh... after Stalingrad, the the Russians had turned, and it was starting to chase the Russians, uh, the, starting to chase the Germans out of Russia. That's a huge important point that is part of this history that's distorted. And then, of course, I, I go to the place where JFK is killed, and i uh, trying to explain in these documentaries why he was killed. That's the most important question. What was the reason? What would be the benefit of it? What would change after he was killed? And if you look at the record, aside from civil rights, Lyndon Johnson changed pretty much everything that Kennedy was doing. He cut off relationships with with Africa, with the Middle East, with Indonesia, with Vietnam. He became another kind of creature, the old-fashioned way of doing business from Eisenhower and Dulles Brothers. That is... Not- Without doubt, and we go into some length to to make this point to the American public. They have to learn this. You have to watch the – you've seen the four-hour version, so you know there's more history there. And the two-hour version is called Revisited. The four-hour version is called Destiny Betrayed. Uh, They're both available. The four-hour is available on on, uh, uh, Shout Factory, and it's also available on – you can rent it on, I think, Amazon – or and, no, you have to buy it. Actually, it's a digital purchase because it just came out yesterday. Is it going to be on ago. iTunes. It'll
0: be on Apple. Can I get yeah, it? Yeah, I think it okay, would be yeah, on Apple. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll get that. I'll Apple it.
1: and iTunes. And the, there's
0: two of them. That one and the other one that you did with the, the, the Nation, two, the 12 episodes. I'll, I'll get. I'll watch the, both of them. No, those. the 12
1: episodes is untold history. That was 2012, yeah. but that has some great stuff on World War II and and the, the Cold War, the Cold War, so, as well as up to the Iraq War. Go
0: go go to to what you said. So you said. The real reason to do the documentary to see why, like yeah. the whole the why, right? Okay, so for you, like, did you catch yourself going on a rabbit hole and, and saying, you know, because I interviewed the mobsters, gangsters, Sammy Bull, Michael Francis, Frank Collada, then I went to to Clint Hill, who was the Secret Service agent to Jackie, to see what he had to say and. You know, and then I went to Abraham Bolden, who was the first Black African American Secret Service agent, and then I went to Cyril Wecht, who was one of the, what do you call him, the a person who, what what do you call Cyril Autopsies. Wecht's job? Autopsy. Forensic, yeah, uh, and then Jim, Jan- and all these things I'm doing. So autology. I went down the rabbit hole to to find, kind of figure out. But for you, what when you're by yourself and the whole thing is done and you watch it, what are you thinking? Who do you think was afraid of revealing the truth about what happened with?
1: Uh, Kennedy, is it CIA? Yeah, when when was that you, your final conclusion? Yeah, when you see that these huge changes, these are huge changes in foreign and domestic policy, except for civil rights. That's the only, uh, as you know, Kennedy submitted the bill, the civil rights of course, act, yep. and it was all based pe- on speech. his momentum, yep. beautiful speech, and based on the momentum of his death, Johnson finally got it passed. That was the beginning, of, and they make Johnson into a hero. But he's not a hero, because those people who say this was a smooth transition are dead wrong. It's rubbish, really rubbish. Kennedy was killed for a reason, and you have to look at the highest levels of our society. Who would hate him or resist him? He was disliked, we know, for his civil rights stance in the South. George Wallace said that he would not win the South in the 64 election. We know that he, had, he said quite openly, after the Bay of Pigs, and after the missile crisis, he avoided war twice with Cuba. This is serious. He avoided two wars. The second one, the missile crisis, could have been mm-hmm. the war that ended mankind. That was a huge nuclear, confl- potentially, conflict. It, to save this country from two wars is, as, to me, is as important as what the Russians did in World War II. Because if they hadn't done what they had done, we would have, American casualties, which were 450,000, might well have been 2, 3 million more just to get through the hitler the fortress that hitler had built in, in europe it's a big deal my father could have been killed your fathers we wouldn't even be here people don't understand they, they agree. there's an there's a easy presumption that we're alive and we and we can, we have these choices but we wouldn't even be alive to make those choices so uh, i'm very my gratitude is enormous to to both the soviet union and to to john kennedy who uh, was killed because he wouldn't go to war against Cuba. Now, the Vietnam thing, they, they accused me of that one, too, but it's been proven correct. Mr. McNamara, his de- secretary of defense, McGeorge Bundy, his national Security advisor, have since written books since my movie came out saying that he was going to pull out of Vietnam, win or lose, win or lose. McNamara was very clear about that in his book in retrospect. Uh, and you have to understand, these are people who were hawks at that time of Vietnam. So they're, they're not interested in saying... They're admitting that I was they were wrong. They're saying Kennedy really was clear about it, but that he couldn't announce it publicly, mm-hmm. couldn't make a big deal of it, because he had to get elected. He was going to run against Barry Goldwater, who was a, a hawk, right? You, you have to be... In America, you can't get elected unless you're a tough guy. Pat, so, have you ever heard
2: that perspective before? What he's saying is, is contradictory to basically what every American has ever which known. Part? Which part? The part specifically about World War II. We've been... You know, the Greatest Generation is the name that everyone uses for the parents of the baby boomers. The
0: they they fought in World War II. No, this one was my, one fifth west, four fifth east. The role Russia played that cost them is that is that what you're talking Precisely. about? Precisely, yeah. and, and
2: ultimately, we've been raised that the Greatest Generation of all time is the World War II generation. You know, they... they baby boomer. They raided the no the parents of the, of the baby boomers. They raided yeah. the streets of Norm uh, the shores of Normandy, and this is the epitome of American culture and exceptionalism, and your father fought in this war, what kind of backlash do you get from your father or your father's, you know, constituency, his age, from what you're saying about World You've War II? a very
1: key question. And yeah. I, I Would think... you
2: mind just pulling this closer to you? Because yeah. you can even move that. I'm saying you can grab that.
1: Like this? You're saying to move the mic a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah, okay, just so we so can it. hear. Because
2: yeah. what you're saying is very important,
1: and it's yeah, contradictory it to
2: anything we've ever heard about America.
1: It's <laughs> a great question. Well, well, thank you, Adam. But the, the, the concept of the greatest generation is mythology. Again, it was invented as far as I know by a uh, Ambrose, Stephen Ambrose, who's a, a certain kind of historian, very patriotic. I believe it was Ambrose, but certainly Tom Brokaw, who, uh, Interviewed me, uh, uh, made also. Uh, I remember him mm-hmm. using that expression. and wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. Tom, legendary Brokow, journalist. NBC. Now Tom, Tom Brokaw is a very nice, liked, very much liked on the air. But he is mm-hmm. not a very bright man, in my opinion. Oh. He interviewed me on the Kennedy assassination for an hour and a half in the. 2013 the 60th anniversary i talked to him very cogently as i'm talking now for an hour and a half he, he, he they when they when they when they released the uh, the documentary it was the, i was there for 60 seconds and it was very superficial that's the kind of treatment you get in ma- major media in the united states you know they cut to the commercial you can't have any serious discussion on the air this is this is so bad. This is part of our problem. We don't think about things. We don't discuss both sides of an equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the greatest generation is is a lie, and they they point to George H. W. Bush. Oh, he was he was a fighter pilot. He, he was a heroic man. Yes, mm-hmm. but well, what? Look what happened. He goes to war in Iraq on the flimsiest of reasons, and the, yeah, there's sorry, a lot sorry. of doubts about that 1990 war. And then we can go into that, but not here. Uh, and he's, they, he was made a giant, a lion of that generation. But he's not. He's not. He was a, he is a man who did his job in World War II. And it was a tough war, uh, no question about it. But a lot of those people, if you go and talk to the actual people who fought in the war, will tell you another story completely uh, how filthy and dirty it was and how, sh I won't use... It was an obscenity. It's it, a podcast. You can, you can speak freely. It was not a pretty war. Yeah. It was... No one's proud of their service. No civilians are killed all the time, all kinds of cowardice, all kinds of infighting among the troops. You, uh, the, the truth of war is that. And so we, we have some kind of, you know, the problem with Now we've sanitized, since Vietnam, we've sanitized the news about war, right? You, you get embedded. You have to have journalists embedded safely with the military in order to report anything. You're not allowed to show the bodies coming back. They, they hide them. Iraq and uh, Afghanistan we we, we've sanitized tried to sanitize the war now we're not even using troops we're trying to use proxy nations and send their armies to fight so I I, we have to re-examine that uh, attitude that we have that we're number one we have to learn to live with other nations learn to cooperate we don't have to be the most dominant nation in the world. I think we'd be better off if we were a quieter, and a little, and let other countries have their power balances. We need a balance of power between people, between countries too, as in a family.
0: Yeah, you, you know, going back to it when you were talking about the we were talking about the JFK uh, um, uh, documentary. There's a there's a part of it where uh, the the CIA agent, they're talking about Oswald and a part of it in the story uh, where in the documentary, they're talking about the other agent whose name is uh, uh, Thomas Arthur v- uh, Valley, right? Thomas Arthur Valley. Very interesting where it shows, you know, they were have a couple other attempts on ass- assassination on Kennedy. One of them being November 2nd in Chicago, the other one being November 18 in Tampa. And he's supposed to go on this 27 mile, you know, yeah. and then they say, you shouldn't do this. This Valley guy, Ex-Marine, Oswald, ex-Marine, uh, was at the Japan base. He's at the Japan base. He trained Another with, base there in, yeah, but in But in Japan. CIA, Cuba training, same yeah. here. He was at a six or seven story building, almost identical to the building. And then the entire time while this is going on, and I'm talking to Jim Jenkins, I said, Jim, let me ask you a question. Who, like, who do you think was behind this? Who do you think caused all of this? And uh, I'm asking him names. I said, what do you think about Lyndon Johnson? And he says, I I don't trust Lyndon Johnson. I said, tell me why. So, you know, the story behind Lyndon Johnson being way more ambitious than John F. Kennedy, and he was so upset with the fact that these guys took office and behind closed doors. So from your end, when you were doing the investigation, you know, JFK wanted to get rid of CIA and Lyndon Johnson wanted to go Vietnam. John F. Kennedy didn't want to go Vietnam. You know, these things that they had. How much? You, I felt like that documentary could have gone a little bit deeper on LBJ's motivation. What did
1: you learn about LBJ at the end? This is a very good question, and I'm uh, reluctant to point at Johnson for the, for the murder. As I said at the time in 1991, I do believe totally he was responsible for the cover-up. Because the cover, he starts with the Warren Commission. He does everything yeah. possible, and he—if you saw the, you remember the documentary—there's even a scene when he's talking to McNamara. You hear the phone conversation where he says, "I didn't agree with you and the president that we should go, that we should uh, uh, pull out of Vietnam." And he's very very pointed. So he, I don't think, though, he wanted to go to Vietnam. I think that it, that was on the agenda because we had already started the process of Vietnam. With Eisenhower, not with Kennedy. With Eisenhower, Mm -hmm. we started the process of supporting the French, paying for the French War. So Kennedy uh, fell into the trap. He sent advisors, not combat troops, but he insisted no combat troops. He insisted to the very end. He insisted no combat troops go to Laos either. No combat troops are going to go to Cuba. That's the reason Bay of Pigs, he, he was hated by the Cuban community after two, three years of this. He refused to fight. Send American troops into Cuba. Kennedy unknown what war was, knew what it meant. He'd been on that PT boat. He'd seen all the—he'd been at the lower level, and he knew he didn't believe the generals. He, he saw the fallacy of this belief that the generals know everything. He, he comes into office. The first thing he's presented with is Eisenhower's SIOP plan, S-I-O-P Sixty-two S S-I-O-P-62, to blow up the world. (laughs) Uh, There is a plan, uh, you know, that they were going to attack China and Moscow, Russia, uh, first. uh, And the first strike option was also on the table. It still is in the United States. The first strike option is still on the table. And very much a consideration in this Ukraine debate, by the way, because certainly that's one of the things the Russians fear the most, is encirclement and NATO and nuclear Nuclear, nuclear arms in the Polish, Romanian, and possibly Ukrainian hands. There it is, single integrated operational plan. It's a v- wicked plan, and it was devised by people who were basically paranoid. You saw the movie Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. You saw the military people as pictured there. Can I, can I read this to the audience? We're calling the single
0: interrogator of oh, have was an the United States that- General Plan for Nuclear War from 1961 to 2003. Gave the President of the United States a range of targeting options and described launch procedures and targets set against the nuclear uh, weapons would be launched to plan integrated integrate the capabilities of nuclear So Interesting.
1: This is a system. This is an industry. This is not just a plan, this is a business. Of billions of dollars. How much have we spent since 1947 on our defense? It's out of proportion to anything we really needed for our defense. It's basically to, to dominate the world, to have 800 bases in every country practically we can Unnecessary. in the world. And it's a gigantic operation, but a lot of people, contractors, uh, Raython, uh Lockheed, Martin, Locking. make a a fortune on this thing a fortune on this business so to close this down to start to reduce it is the hardest thing to do in the world since Jack Kennedy was president no American president has gone close to even trying to interfere with the, hmm. with the military with that system to really cut back or at the same time with the interfered with the intelligence agencies of this country remember he said very clearly after the Bay of Pigs, because they had given him false information and they betrayed him there he said i'm going we 're going to destroy i'd to'd i 'd like to shatter the CIA and and scatter it to the winds I forgot the exact quote, but he certainly made the effort He fired Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, he was a respected, revered figure from the 1950s under Eisenhower. His brother it was John Foster Dulles, Secretary of State, who set this policy not of neutrality but of Rollback. It wasn't even it, containment had been the American policy towards communism. Mm. Rollback. This is what uh, Dulles wanted. And he wanted brinksmanship. He believed in brinksmanship. And, he, and that's what was going on right now. The same people are back in the State Department and giving that kind of advice to Joe Biden. But, okay, we're there now again. This, we're potentially at another Cuban missile crisis, potentially. Going back to this system that existed, uh, Kennedy was trying to change it. And the moment he went killed, the whole thing changes. We keep going. All the presidents—they're puppets, basically. They—they—they operate within a certain parameter. Mm -hmm. They can't touch the two most important things: are the intelligence agencies and the military-industrial.
2: Do you two have a similar opinion on who actually killed JFK?
1: Yeah. Well, we (laughs) haven't gotten there yet. Well, what is your opinion? I'm curious. Well, my opinion is is based on what. Years of thinking about it, but frankly, it can't. Johnson was a weakling compared to what we're dealing with here. Johnson was a, the loser. He was a vice president, and uh, he had a lot of scandal in his life, so he was not in a position of great strength, which makes him all the more suspect. As a, but he, he would have been very suspect if he, something had happened to Kennedy. He, the people who did this have to be at the very top of the society. They had to be CIA. And the only people I can really think work are the dullest people, because he was the king of the CIA. And he had, although he had been fired, he was still in Washington, and he was very active. His people were still there. Kennedy fired Bissell and, uh, and uh, Cabell, but the whole the people left in the CIA. You have to clean out the whole agency, as Harriman said that. You cannot leave those people in place. Richard Helms became the new... Traffic cop, he became the new real head. Uh, McCone was appointed, but he was a figurehead. Helms and and that gang were still there. And those are the guys you really got to look at because they were moving the Oswalds around the map to Russia. The, this is what Dulles did. They, they, had a, they had a program. Angleton was another guy, James Angleton, who ran that program, putting American defectors into Russia for information. We wanted land-based information. We wanted... Sp- we didn't. We had spy. Uh, we had uh, U-2 flights and all that. But what they wanted, people on the ground. They sent over quite a few defectors. How they how they get there, and how they came back is a very interesting story. And of course, Oswald is hardly examined. He's, he's also given money. It's just a strange, strange story. We go into it. The fingerprints of intelligence are all over Oswald. It's very clear from uh, if you watch these. Uh, even the two-hour will make that very clear. Yeah, it's- so if you have that intelligence, but even at that level, Dulles would not have been, Dulles had to be given the go ahead by someone else. And who, the only people I can think of is, is the people who basically run this country, basically, East Coast Financial people from the establishment, and that goes to a high level. And that doesn't mean everybody. They're not sitting around a, a, a conference room. It just means he has to have a conversation. Is it, o- is it OK? This president is a problem. He's, he's antagonized big business uh, with the steel price hike. He's made it very clear his pacifist tendencies, and his getting along with these third world countries. He's anti-colonial, very much the Irish rebel. This is going to be a problem because he's going to get elected in 64. And then his brother, his brother right. Robert, who's a tough guy, he fought, the, he fought the mob. He's going to come in 60 and 72, potentially. 76. And then there's this other younger brother, Teddy, who was already in the Senate. And he's going to be next. Could be a dynasty. They're scared of Roosevelt. Roosevelt had been there for f- 15 years. 15 years of Roosevelt. This, they were scared. A lot of these people were shaken, like my father. They didn't want to see another right. renaissance of democratic rule, uh, people's rule. They, they don't believe in people's democracy. They don't believe the people should run the country. No, they want control, and you, so that's the whole thing. The Eisenhower and Reagan are so anti-Roosevelt. They, they, all their policies are gradually dismantling the New Deal. And you see that through the whole 1980s, 90s, even now. We have some remnants of the New Deal, which I think are very good, but they're going to be under fire. They're going to be under threat.
0: Uh, Oliver, how, how different is how different is uh, what was going on then versus now? Because I, so, so for me, I watched two documents. I watched Ukraine on fire. I watched Winter on fire. So Winter on fire was the one Sean Penn talks about. Ukraine it. on fire. You know, yours is Ukraine on oh, fire. There's yeah. another one that says Win- yeah, I know, Winter on I fire. Know. And so I watch both of them because I want to kind of get a feel. Winter on Fire is more about the students, the revolution. Hey, Victor agreed. Yes, we're going to sign the EU agreement. We're going to go with them. Everything's going to work out overnight. He says, no, I'm going to go to Russia. So the students revolt and they're, you know, all those scenes. It's very emotional stuff to watch, but you watch that. So then I go and watch yours because Winter on Fire doesn't tell the history of Ukraine. It doesn't tell the history of what
1: <laughs> Stefan can't. Bandera
0: they, did. You know, you know, you can't. know who he was and how eighty thousand Ukrainian Ukrainian soldiers represented and fought for Hitler, and then they put him in jail, and then you know the the, the two victors battling and the role Russia played. It, it was a very interesting way of seeing Ukraine on fire. What What did you learn about Ukraine and Russia when you did the documentary
1: Ukraine on Fire? <sighs> uh. Because we're in it right now. We're in the thick of but things also, right you now. Also, there's antecedents here. Yet. Among other things, you should go back to World War II. And you should understand that there's a split in the Ukraine and that part, half of Ukraine is Russian-speaking. The other half is anti-Russian, mm-hmm. or strongly so. Uh, Stephen Bandera and people like that uh, were working with the Nazis. Many groups. Uh, the Ukrainians were uh, pre- uh, hunting Jews, in in Ukraine and in uh, Poland, there was a lot of killing going on. It was a dirty, bloody war. So much stuff happened that, it, so uh, you have all these people. They never went away. They're still there in the Ukraine. If you look at the Maidan, uh, the Maidan moment, and you look at our film, you'll see very clearly the Nazi, the neo Nazis are back, the Azov Battalion, the Idr Battalion, uh, the Right Sector Party. And and you see them on camera, and they're very rough customers, these people. They're not about to be—they don't believe in democracy. They don't—yeah, there was a lot of students and a lot of honest people in Maidan, and there was a lot of frustration with the corruption in Ukraine. But uh, we go into the whole history of that relationship of uh, the president— with the EU. He tried to make a deal with the EU. He had a better economic deal from Russia. That's, that's the reason he stayed. He didn't sign on to the EU deal. Very important to recognize that. He wanted to postpone it until he got a better deal. And that makes sense, too. When all this was happening in Maidan, he even offered to have an earlier election. He offered it. He said, you know, if you want to ha- you, okay, you want to get rid of me? It's not democratic, but we'll, we'll go with an earlier election. And they actually accepted it, but then the, the, these thugs who are operating behind the scenes at Maidan, very organized, by the way, very organized. I think the CIA plays another role there because CIA has been involved with Ukrainian Nazis since World War II. We got a lot of them out to our country on the rat lines, and we came back after World War II in '48. There was a uh, an operation by the CIA to drop these people into Ukraine to make trouble, to start uh, troubles for uh, Russia. It's an, it's an old story. It's not new. You know this is. But, but I don't think a lot of people know it, though. Well, they, it's an it's a fact. In fact, the guy I w- worked with on JFK, Fletcher Prouty, was a colonel who was in the World War II and Air Force, and he was the, one of those guys who supplies these these. Uh, uh, infiltrate infiltrators to the ukraine with weapons and with flights and you have to drop them and so forth and so on it's, it's a lot of hardware all these guys were picked up by the way that's what's amazing that we are in, it's like with castro whenever we go up against castro he seems to find out the people we send in uh, secretly it's an interesting side effect but the russians picked up the russian ukraine picked up these people but we tried to destroy Russia. Is, is your from phone on by, by any chance?
0: Do you, do you know what? if your phone is on? Because someone's ring is going on. Oh, I'm
1: doing this, you mean?
0: I know, is your phone on? Do you have your phone with you? Maybe it's your phone going on because someone's phone's no. going off. I have it with me, but I... Check to see if maybe if it's going off. Okay uh just the ringtone no it's nothing okay sounds good so stumbling. it's off. so 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 now if we watch tv today and we turn it on you're seeing a okay, well, Zelensky yeah. that is standing and he's you know looking pretty strong and tough and he's not you know reacting and the news is telling us that russia's lost five to six thousand soldiers uh in the last few weeks which is more than what we lost in iraq and you know, they, the, the two foreign ministers had a conversation together two, three days ago. It was an hour and a half conversation in Turkey. Nothing, uh, no advancements really made. How different is Ukraine's story today versus when you did the documentary? How much has changed? Because Zelensky is not in your documentary when you did it, right? So is, is it night and day, different story today? Are they making more uh, progress? I did. It.
1: We did. No, it's not me who did it. Uh, uh, the director was Igor Lapatonik, who was Ukrainian. Russian-Ukrainian, and he did it. I was an interviewer and a pro- one of the producers. So uh, these two films, Ukraine on Fire, and the other one is called uh, Ukraine Revealed. Revealed goes into the present moment with Zelensky there. Uh, it's a very interesting documentary about the opposition candidate, Viktor Medvedek, Medvedchuk, Victor Medvedchuk, revealing Ukraine. That's it. Robert Parry, who was one of the great journalists in our country, who was the most eloquent about Ukraine and and saw this coming, he was talking about a nuclear conflict back in 2014 when this thing went down. He saw it coming. He died in 2015. It's a great loss to American journalism. He was the truth teller. Uh, this story is today is so passionate and so complicated. All the news in America, unfortunately, is. Is one side. You don't get uh, anything from the other side. There's no, and they banned, uh, they banned RT and they banned, uh, mm-hmm. right? They, they have a very concerted campaign to cut off what they call Russian disinformation is perhaps the best information we can get from what's really going on. And I, frankly, I don't have all the details. I do hear the other side because I read alternate media, which is to say uh, what's available on the internet. They're not going to be able to kill off all that because there are a lot of American journalists who are aware of this and writing about it. There are people who have actually been in Donbass and can tell you that in, from 2014 to now, Donbass has been victimized by the Ukrainian army, and especially by the Nazi, the neo-Nazi gangs. They're the ones who've been dropping the artillery, killing people. It's been a bloody, and it's hard. There's an estimated 16,000 dead, most of them on the Russian side most of them uh, Donbass people, okay? And that is never dealt with. You don't hear about it in the U.S. media. Can
2: you pull up Donbass on the map? And I'd like by to the way, a lot of them is. have
1: immigrated. Because of the bombings, yeah. they, mo- they immigrated to Russia across the border. And uh, you don't hear about that. You'll hear about refugees only going to the other side from this war. I don't think it's an— uh, Listen, I don't know what Putin had. Putin, Putin uh, was squeezed he was provoked into this thing, and that's the truth. The United States has using Ukraine as, an, as a proxy to put pressure. The U.S. doesn't care about Ukraine. They care about Russia. This is a chance to destabilize Russia, remove the leader, re- regime change once again on a, big, on a big way. This is a big victory for them if they can pull it off. And this was always the gold. From the beginning, I, I don't think there's any concern about the uh, Ukrainian people, except as a sentimental thing in the newspaper as well. This person was killed, that person was killed. But what about the people who were killed on the other side? They never mentioned them for five, six years. No, more than that, eight years. Those people were killed, too. Families were killed. Um, you know, it, it's, it's crazy what you're saying. So let me, let me give you a different
0: perspective mm-hmm. from, my, from my life. So when I lived in Iran, if you turn on the news in Iran, we have two channels. Uh, every president in Iran in the U.S. was the enemy. You heard death upon America. You heard about how big of an enemy everybody was except for people in Iran. So you, we were naive. We thought Khomeini was the greatest thing since sliced bread. We thought Khomeini, Imam, Khamenei, these guys were all right, and the Shah was horrible. The Shah was a horrible person in Iran. I mean, if you said anything good about the Shah in Iran, yeah. you're a bad person, right? So then you come to, we go live in Germany. And you watch Sat Ains in Germany, okay? Sat Ains is like their NBC, let's just say, right? And you're watching Sat Ains, and you're saying who they paint as being a bad person, right? And they're painting the picture of who's what, right? Then you come to the states, you turn on the news, and you hear who the enemy is, right here, you know. And then, and then eventually, you got to get to a point that either you're gonna follow the masses, and if they're believing what they're believing, you got to question some of it, right? So. A U.S., Carter, what they did, which was uh, seems like very interesting strategy that they're currently using here as well, this is a very easy playbook to use, is they used Khomeini, who was in France, a way to get the Shah to be out. So Carter goes to Iran, has a nice little dinner with the Shah, December 31st, 77. They do a toast, gives a toast, leaves. Revolution happens right off the bat. I'm born in seventy eight, October 18th. Kissinger keeps saying we're going to help you, we're going to help you, we're going to help you, we're going to help you. Then the last thing they tell him is, we'll help to take you out. And he leaves, you know, in January, February, something second. Khomeini takes over, and then Iran right away. There's a war between Iraq now. U.S. doesn't get. Then <laughs> there's so well, it, we do, it, it, we do get involved. What, what we do get involved But the point, and then who makes money? The military-industrial complex, you know, all these Raytheon, Northrop Grumman. But but the point is. The, the, there is there is rarely a way to know the whole story. You just said something right now that the audience is going to sit there and say, wait, U.S. is using Ukraine as a proxy to get to Putin to remove him because now the whole world hates that guy. They want to move him. Okay. What was your experience like when you did your
1: interview with Putin? What- well, to, yeah, I, I'll tell you in a second. Yeah. But uh, Just to make one more point about Iran, to me the whole thing uh, devolves back to 1953 when they got the Mossadier. CIA yeah. and British intelligence got rid of Mossadegh he was the democratic choice for prime minister he was very popular among most people in Iran and he would have won and he would have kept going and he nationalized part after a lot of provocation he nationalized the oil interests the british oil interests particularly in, in Iran that was his that that was the signal for, to get rid of him so they used the CIA were very heavily involved they they paid money to mobs to storm the streets, to create all these distractions, like they did in Maidan, to uh, bring uh, chaos to the country. And then in the chaos, he was called a communist again. He was not a communist because of the two-day party. He did have contacts, but he, did, he was not a communist. He was more like a Bernie Sanders. He, he was, he was yes, more of he a was socialist. Like, he was not a communist. He was a, he he was was a, a great socialist. man. He was a great man. Yeah. Well, a, he was just most of too them. trusting. Yeah. He trusted too much, and they got rid of him. They didn't kill him. But they he lived they, in like they, a little they removed village. him, yeah, and they put the Shah in again. they'd done that before, and the Shah, of course, became more and more of a tyrant, and a lot of torture. I went to the prison there, I saw all the, the, the stories of the torture they're very famous in Iran. A lot of people were scared to open their mouths under the Shah, and of course, Khomeini comes in. he was not. The people's choice he was definitely a counter he was uh, because of the extremism of the Shah that's you get another extreme reaction mm-hmm. to that that always happens in history it is very rarely can a moderate emerge in this world Khomeini was extreme and whatever you, you know you know the, the rest of the story uh, however Khomeini did have a lot of provocation we went on the Iran Iraq side of the war we supported Iraq at first, we gave, them, we gave them weapons. And then we, when, when Reagan wanted help with the Contras in uh, Latin America to, to defeat the Nicaraguan communists, he gave weapons He gave weapons to uh, Iran, which is to Khomeini's regime. It was just amazing. This is 1983, 82, right? Right a Carter. Dirty yeah. story. I mean, Reagan was a tra- well, basically had done something that the worst American. I mean, it, it, it's traitor. It's an act of a traitor. I mean you're supporting the supposed mm. enemy? Nixon in Watergate never did anything close to what uh, Reagan did. Reagan got away with it because he was popular in a sense. He had that smile. He was a good performer. Contragate is one of the most undiscovered scandals in American history. Contragate. If you should really read up on it, because it's a very important scandal. And it comes, it comes unglued. And Reagan, in the last two years of his life, his presidency was unable to uh, was unable to uh, keep his agenda going. In fact, we would have been in we, we, we would have been in a war in Nicaragua. He would have sent troops to Nicaragua. I was down in that region because I was visiting it to make Salvador, my first one of my first movies. I was in that region. I saw all the troops in Honduras. I saw the troops in El Salvador. There was, quite, there was an operation about to happen, and it, thank God iran gate was blown. Mm-hmm. Among them was Robert Parry, who blew the story, changed the direction of the country briefly.
3: All these well, stories are North, saying. What we, we, we heard about this yeah. from Oliver North. Yeah, he was should, in all the hearings, looking as a very statesman-like yeah, yeah. colonel.
1: That's, that was the portrayal, right? Oliver North but, was one of the uh, malefactors. Yes, he was one of Reagan's men. But... It goes back to Reagan. He got away with it. North took a fall, as do as you know. How many people resigned in Iran-Contra? About six people. McFarland. There was a whole bunch of people who resigned. I forgot exactly who. Reagan, uh, sk- he basically sk- uh, skated out of there uh, two years later.
2: By the way, the, all these stories that you're bringing up, which are and know. so did
1: George H. W. Bush. Bush was definitely involved in negotiations with the Iranians. He got out, too. I mean, this whole thing was buried. And you have to point to the Washington media here. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to finish the story. But sure. Washington Post plays a huge role here. Catherine Graham, who was the famous star, Meryl Streep played her in the Post, Miss Hero of America, all that kind of stuff. She, she buried the story. She did not believe after Watergate, the Post had been involved in Watergate. She said, mm-hmm. I don't think America can take a second shock like this. So she killed it, killed the story. There was no coverage.
2: I was just going to say that all these stories that you're bringing up, which are not easy on the ears, if you're obviously pro-American, the one visualization that I'm having is the whole scene from Trump's interview in 2016, where he famously says, oh, you think we're that innocent, too? What was the one thing that he said? (laughs) Oh, you (laughs) think that we don't have blood? (laughs) It's the one honest thing that Trump says you said? Possibly. <laughs> okay. But it's true. I mean, essentially, you're taking, you're going inside the underbelly of America, the CIA, and, you know, what's happening in the Oval Office, and, the, you know, these secret conversations, and you're bringing, and you're shining a light on them. And it's not so pretty. Even if you love America, it's hard to digest. But let's I love let's, America,
1: let's, and I can take this, uh, I can take the dirt. I think that's what we have to do. We have to be truthful and we can be better people, we can, and we can treat other people with respect and understand our limitations as well. It's Why do we have to be top dog is a, is a big question. Well, that's, that's American exceptionalism, right? I mean, that's the concept of capitalism. There's competition.
0: That's in the core DNA that we have here. This is why America yeah. has 40 million immigrants, that they want to come here and have an equal opportunity to compete in the marketplace, and if you can... You can build a great life for yourself, but you can't have a capitalistic society and then ask people, why are we so competitive to be number one? <laughs> it's part, like if you play for the Yankees, the Yankees don't start the season saying, guys, listen, let's just play the game. Forget about going to play. Who cares about the playoffs? Let's just win to play the game. That's not the Yankees nature. Yankees are starting a season to say, let's crush everybody and win the World Series. That's well, the that's DNA what the of Dodgers the lake. Tried to do the yeah. Dodgers try to do that. The Yankees. A lot of these guys. But going, going to Putin. Going to Putin. So, you know, my mother's side, they're from Russia. Okay, so their their Bible was Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. So they're from the Stalin Lenin era. They escaped uh, or Baku, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and they came to uh, Bandar Pahlavi, which is right on Caspian Sea, North uh, Iran, and it's uh, a few hours away from Tehran. And we heard stories, you know, about who Lenin was, who Stalin was, who these guys were, et cetera, et cetera. And then here in America, if if you drop the name Putin to the average person, and let's just say David goes on the streets as a man on the street in New York or he does in Miami. If you ask 100 people who's Putin, they're going to say what? Dictator, he's this, he's that, he's a murderer. He's going to say all this stuff about him, right? Now, you have actually interviewed him with them. I don't know how many hours you guys were together. It was a project that took quite a while to do. And four of these interviews were launched. So... Who is Putin to you, having spent one-on-one time with them? How different is it than what we see on TV,
1: how he's portrayed? Uh, you probably don't want to hear it, but he's a son of Russia in the sense that he has Russian interests are foremost in his mind, as, he, as would any leader in, in any country, whether it's the Philippines or Taiwan or this or that. I mean, he is, cares about his country, and he serves it. That's the way he—and that's why he's, he's there, because people feel— that he's there. And it's, they talk about he's, he's a tyrant, but he wouldn't stay in office in Russia, the Russia that I know. And many people would agree with this, that it, if he was a monster, which is pictured in the West, he'd be out of office because he wouldn't work. They they have this in, indirect democracy, so to speak, The people are not happy, things are bad, the guy is out. And that's what happened to a few leaders. So, uh, on that point, you know, I, I went at it without preconceptions, like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'd heard all the stories. And, of course, I spoke to people who told me other things. Among them was Stephen Cohn, who became, I became very friendly with. Cohn was, the, I think, the leading Sovietologist in our country. He was studied Russia. He, he gave me, uh, point by point, all the descriptions of these murders and who possibly did them. But it certainly it would be ridiculous for Putin to have done them. Because the motive would have come right back on him. He would have been—I mean, it's beyond—the narrative is so poorly constructed against him by the CIA, and it's been a narrative there for, what is it, 20 years Mm now— Twenty years of lying and blaming everything on Russia. You have to be in, you have to be a little bit more fair-minded. You have to be open to say that is it possible that oh that Russia has done all this and and we're the good guys? It's like a good versus bad scenario. It feels like a you know John Wayne movie. It's not. We're not John Wayne. We uh, we have been trying to destabilize Russia since uh, 1917 actually. Well, we sent an army there in 1918-19 with the, the 16 other armies to take apart the revolution. Woodrow, This great Democrat, Woodrow Wilson, sent the army. Then again, we, uh, we didn't recognize Russia until Roosevelt recognized Russia in 33. Roosevelt is the one who tried, and he reached out to Stalin, and he met with him. They, he met with him, and he liked him. And he said, Uncle Joe, they had fun together. They laughed. They, they got, met in Iran. They got along. And Roosevelt no. had a plan. If he'd lived after April '45 to bring Russia into the into this grand alliance that he wanted, he saw a UN grand alliance. It was a very it was a very uh, strong, good picture of the world. England would be U.S., China, Russia. Uh, it was a tragedy. He died in April because Truman came in and. He reversed the policy. It was like Johnson after Kennedy. He reversed the policy with uh, the Russia right away. Right away. They had a horrible meeting. Stalin was sent, felt that this was, uh, the opening was over. And, of course, Stalin is not—I'm not saying he's a, he's, he was a tyrant. That was a tyrant. And he was, very, and he was a murderer, and he killed people. But that doesn't change the effort that Russia made in World War II and the sacrifice they made and how they helped us, too. So you have to balance the good and the bad. The people who hate Russia, of course, point to Stalin as the most evil man of all time, worse than Hitler. So they make a whole scenario about him, but they ignore what the Russians' contribution was to World War II. And Stalin, frankly, held that country together at that time. He was a tough guy. But uh, you 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 have to make sometimes you have to lie in bed with people like that to uh, to uh, get what you need. And America has to be realistic about it. It can't be a child about comic book heroes. So anyway, Putin is, uh, listen, I spent, uh, I'm limited. I spent uh, four trips, maybe 30 hours with a man. So, and the result, you should see it. I hope you see it. It's called uh, the Putin interviews. It's four hours long, four hours long. Mm -hmm. It was on Showtime. It still is. And it's available on, through other channels, too. You can get it probably on Amazon. You can rent it or you can buy it. It's a, it's, he, he answers these questions that we're dealing with today. Ukraine, foremost in his mind at that point. This was 2000, right after 14. This was 16 area. And he, he tells me the whole story from his point of view, even down to who's firing who. Who are the people who are firing shots at Maidan? It's not, it's not uh, pro-Russian forces, because they're firing from buildings occupied by the protesters. It's, a, it's people who are sni- snipers who are firing at the crowd, killing both policemen and, and protesters. That's the whole point. You cre- it was like the same thing that happened in Venezuela back uh, around that time. That's a CIA technique color revolution then you then you have the violence the violence breaks out somebody's killing somebody but you kill from both sides you create the the, this disturbance and they killed a lot of uh, cops they killed protesters and that kicked off so who did it who was firing from those buildings Uh, there was lots of stories about the neo-nazi gangs that were coming into Kiev from the western from the west of ukraine it's most likely them. I mean, it probably was them. It may have been some foreign mercenaries, too. So there was all that violence, is what creates that mood for, uh, for change. So they throw the president out illegally. They don't, they don't have an election. They, they, we install this guy, uh, w- w- uh, the one the that, other victor. Uh, whoever he was, uh, Victoria Newland is there yeah. from the State Department. She's the leader of the neocon faction. Uh, and the American ambassador—it's all we—we ri- we got the recordings. They're talking about getting rid, and she even says, "Fuck the EU," because the EU wants to do it more legally. You know, frankly, France and Switzerland were playing a role here, a very imp- and Germany were playing a, a very important role in trying to make this a transition that was democratic. It didn't because they were going to have an earlier election. It didn't happen because of the violence. The Nazis have much more power in uh, Ukraine than you think. The United States denies it. because They say Zelensky is a Jew, and that's their motivation for saying, well, how can they be neo-Nazi? That's nonsense. Neo-Nazis were there way before Zelensky, and Zelensky had no power. In fact, when he became president, he had to make a deal with them. He had to make a deal with them because they're tough people. They are telling the president what to do. You cannot change the Ukraine policies you have the United States telling you what to do and you have the neo-Nazis telling you what to do and what, it's, a, it's disgusting that the United States is condones it doesn't mention them, doesn't talk about them but basically condones what the Nazi, the neo-Nazis are doing in Ukraine that's what's sick, really sick so when you talk about all that, Putin is talking about that he talks about Ukraine and he talks a lot about NATO this was back then he saw it he, for him it's you're putting my back against the wall I'm going, you're pushing me You're strangling me. We're surrounding them. We made the Baltics very aggressive towards them. Sweden, Finland, uh, Poland has been. We put uh, 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 anti-ballistic missiles in Poland. That's horrible. And Romania, and these missiles can be adapted to an offensive weaponry, and in five minutes could be in Moscow. You see, from from their point of view, it's they they feel the squeeze. You put his back up against the wall, what are you doing? You're going to create a state either where he's going to go to war and he's going to fight back, and he's got the nuclear weapons to do so. They're, they're, they're crude weapons, but they're, they're very big, strong weapons, hypersonic missiles. We have very f- refined weapons. We have, we have great weapons, too. But who wouldn't want to be there in that war? It's, it's, it's not a war that makes any sense for the world. And uh, he's push, we're pushing him to the wall. Either that or else we'll get what we want, which is regime change. Uh, bring in some guy like Yeltsin was in 1990, who'd work with us, basically cannibalize the country, and allow, the, allow their resources to be exploited. It's
3: interesting it. what, you're, what you're saying, Oliver, because one of the techniques that was deployed at the fall of the Berlin Wall remember, was Reagan putting the Pershing missiles in Germany. I remember that, yeah. And remember, and it really freaked out Gorbachev. Oh, yeah. And they went to Iceland, and Gorbachev said, what do you want me to do? And Reagan said, you should have said yes. And so looking back to the lens, is this kind of the, you think, what I'm hearing is you
1: see a playbook here. Absolutely, absolutely. Never changed. The, the neoconservatives have kept this playbook alive. If you remember the project for the New American Century, that was the the plan to attack all these countries and get and clean out the Middle East first of all. Uh, it was a husband of Victoria Newland, Kagan, Robert Kagan, who was one of the project founders. You can go up to Robert Kagan and you can go to Victoria Newland on your board there. Uh, these are the villains. These are the Foster Dulleses and Alan Dulleses of the modern era. That her and her husband. Yeah, uh, you know, she's a beauty. She's a beauty. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I when I see a face like go. that, it makes me uh, really. And I, I, I voted for Biden, and because I thought, you know, the Uncle Joe, that he mellowed. You know, he can't be as bad as he used to be when she was for every war America was in. Remember, he was like he was a cold warrior. He's never, but he never changed. He never. He he should be curbing these people instead of appointing them to. Uh, she comes from the Hillary Clinton period. She, uh, he's inherited that, and he, he let her become Under Secretary of State for that region, and that is a huge mistake. Huge mistake. But show me Kagan, her, her, uh, her husband. I wonder what they have, what their days are like, and what their dinners are like. <laughs> well, there's some. You're
3: describing some very strange bedfellows, and what's interesting, you were talking about. You know, it's an easy connection, one that I've heard and that seemed very logical about. Eisenhower's prophecy about the military industrial complex in his departing addresses, he brought it up more than once. Uh, Apparently Kennedy took that very, very seriously or already had predilection in that direction. But then you're talking about the, um, the intelligence, the intelligence community and the ability to get the go ahead. Isn't it interesting that Alan Dulles ends up on the Warren Commission? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I think you could answer that for yourself. It's like the fox is investigating not, the chicken coop. You yeah, know? it's not really a question. It was uh, kind of a reflective <laughs> thing. It's Alan, like, Alan Dulles did everything in his power. He, first of all, he didn't have a job. So he was, he was available to come in for every session. None, none of the other uh, members uh, of the commission were able to do that. Dulles uh, supervised, followed that thing. Everything from the CIA was blocked of, of importance. Nothing got through. The, the biggest crime of all was that he didn't even bother to tell the, his fellow commissioners that we had tried to assassinate Castro. Didn't tell them. Mm-hmm. So they didn't even know about our assassination programs when they started this commission. So where are they going to go? They, they, they're in the dark. But they didn't have a, They had an agenda anyway. It was going to be jacket was. J. Edgar Hoover said three bullets, six seconds, a crazy assassin, uh, a communist type. And that was it. It was closed. That was over. It was, there was no investigation beyond that. Everything had to fit that scenario. Can and I revisit
2: if, uh, one thing you just said a second ago? I don't want to gloss over it because, I, I mean, I'm listening to you, I'm being educated beyond. But you said that you voted for Biden. And yeah, yeah. I, I assume you didn't do that lightly. Well, I didn't Meaning, have a choice. <laughs> okay, well that's what I wanted to ask you: is that why do you feel like your back was against the wall? Like if you didn't have a choice uh, to put it in Putin well, terms?
1: Is frankly, and then had...
2: what did you expect
1: from him? And what did you know? Yeah. What do you? What grade would you, I guess, give him now? I, you know, I'm a sucker for believe. I'm, I'm an optimist, and I believe that he reached a certain age, a uh, 78, that he's a little more mature, and that he sees the bigger picture. And, in this case ukraine he is he 's making a big mistake, a big mistake he 's all oh, he thinks he 's off the hook he's he looks like the good guy now with all this anti Russian thing. But when we get to a deeper place, which is where it 's going to go, and this thing gets harder and harder for Americans, and they might be mm-hmm. we 're not past any war yet. the war could expand now certainly Zelensky would like the war to expand because he would sacrifice. The world in order to uh, save ukraine he doesn 't care about us doesn 't care about he sees his whole thing as a crusade as a jihad. Uh, Biden has given him the go ahead to to do this. Biden is the one who should be calming this situation down. he should be speaking to Putin, mm-hmm. speaking to Zelensky, calming it down being a statesman instead of an uh, ideologue. This is a time for uh, uh, a uh, a Kennedy, this is a time, that's what Kennedy did with Khrushchev, this mm-hmm. is a time for statesmen, a statesman, you know, like a Charles de Gaulle, somebody who really has a picture of the world. I, I was hoping Macron of France could have some effect, but it, it, you can't get through the Ukrainian-U.S. connection, that's mm-hmm. the problem.
2: But beyond you, Ukraine, I mean, what's happening there's with There's no the, beyond
1: Ukraine right now, because you, it's stuck there. There's a disconnect. The Americans see Russia as a evil, and They don't understand, and the the Russian position, which is crazy. Why can't a statesman understand what Russia is thinking? Putin is fighting for his life. You can get rid of him, but whoever takes his place will probably be tougher Mm -hmm. because they know that they're up against it. Okay, let them give up. Let's say, okay, give up. So what do you do if you want to give up? All right. Then you put, your, put, your, put NATO in, into Ukraine. Put, put missiles into Ukraine. Fine. You can put them right on our border. We'll take all the refugees you can give us. And uh, there'll be another confrontation when you make your next move.
2: Mm-hmm. And one of the things you often hear, though, is, well, this would be different under Trump.
1: Nothing uh, happened with Ukraine other- and Russia under Trump. That's not true. That's not true at all. Trump, on the contrary, is a very strange guy. He was making sounds about Putin when he was, came in, and I was hoping that there'd be some détente, but as he, as he got more and more pressure for his uh, Russiagate, which was a joke, but it was a serious, serious accusation, that was of course political too, putting pressure on Trump, not allowing him to get anything done with this pressure from Russiagate for what, two years? Mm-hmm. That was insane that he was a Russian agent all that stuff. No one—I mean, if you were thinking, it's, it was so ridiculous. And I asked Putin about that, too, and it, Putin practically laughed. It was—he knows that it's not possible. But they, they pictured Trump as a, as a tool, as a Manchurian candidate or something. As a result, he became very anti-Russian, too, in the sense that he was passed every single sanction against Russia that was asked put, put onto him by Congress. You check his record on Russia. He did everything they wanted— And then recently, I I saw yesterday or two days ago, one of his comments, which was insane. He said he would he would he would he's not a coward like uh, like Biden, something like Biden is a weakling, something like that, implying that he would be much tougher, which means what war, nuclear war, to my mind. Last thing before we wrap up here, Um, what what so you said that
0: the, the right thing to do right now for Biden is to be a statesman. Um, <clears throat> to be a statesman, right thing for him to do right now is to be a statesman. He reach should, out yeah. to Putin, have a meeting with him, sit down, have that conversation.
1: Well, he also has to take the he has to deal with Ukrainian and he has to deal with the neo-Nazi issue. He's got to deal with the Ukraine administration, the way it, the, that country is run. There, uh, I think if you can, obviously if we could reach a deal where we could they could split east and west, it would. It would but it's very hard to do that. Yeah, that's not going to be easy to do, though. I don't think that's the direction
0: it's going to go. Yeah. You saw they made him an offer, and Zelensky turned it down. But he promised them that he's going to cool off the negotiation with NATO, and he's kind of backing out from getting closer to NATO. It seems like, uh, you know, who who is, who is Putin most uh, annoyed and upset with for him to get to this point? Is he seeing it, from your opinion, as being opportunistic, saying... I'd rather do it under Biden because of how they handled Afghanistan and, and the Taliban got what they wanted rather than Trump. Is it more purely he's just being uh, uh, opportunistic or did somebody do something with a proxy, NATO, Biden, U.S.?
1: Somebody pissed him off to say, no. this is the time to go attack. He didn't get pissed off. No, he just he, he doesn't get pissed off. What struck me about him over these years that I met him was how cool he was, how rational he's a he's a chess player. He, does, he looks at politics as without emotion, and that's, I think, one of his... Powerful. You know, you, you, talk to, you talk about him as if he's some villain in the West, but the truth is, if you go to Africa and you go to the Middle East and parts of Asia, you'd be surprised that he's admired as one of the best statesmen of this era. Hmm. But unfortunately, we've put him in this. It's a disconnect between America, and partly because of our propaganda. It's very powerful. I'm surprised by the EU's tough... I mean, basically, you understand Biden made this move using Ukraine, but it helps him with EU and NATO. It, t- it makes their dependence on the United States even tighter. So, and he was worried about losing their control of the EU sector because they're economically much more involved with Russia and China than, than we would like. How, what, what's, what's the worst thing? Last question. What's the worst thing Putin is
0: capable of doing? The if- worst thing? And yes, the worst thing he's capable of doing if we keep playing the
1: yeah, strategy hope, there's that we're no, right. There's no hope down that road. Okay. So if we put more in pressure and more pressure, which is what happened recently, he's going to fight back. And will he blow up the world? My God. I, what does he... I mean, is he supposed to sacrifice Russia to the world? Perhaps that's the ultimate question, right? Are you willing to become leave office uh, be whatever be shamed would you be willing to let russia become open to nato or whatever you want is you know something like that but that would be a complete capitulation wouldn't it and that would oh. be the end of the uh the russians are very proud people uh, the ones that i saw they're very proud their country is i said he's a son of russia he's not a communist he's not a evil bench. He's a son of Russia. He's very lower class, came from a poor family. His parents were in the war. I mean, the whole story, it's just, and not, he's not a KGB agent. That's another ridiculous thing. Uh, you hear that. George Bush was in the CIA, but we don't say he was a CIA agent. But that's an American denigration, as if he's still thinking like a KGB agent out of James Bond, and he wants to, he wants to kill people. It's, it's childish. He's a Russian patriot. And if we see him that way, you can start to deal with him. But there's so Russia phobia in this country. It's As I say, going back to 1918, I wish uh, you need a statesman. You need American statesmen. Uh, who's the last one? Kennedy. Do we have a current one right now? Gorbachev is still alive. I wish that he'd come out of... He's old. I met him a few times. Uh, I, I like Gorbachev, he, but I don't think the American side would even even deal with him I mean they wouldn't understand what his contribution has been to the world I thought 1986 was going to be a new era when he came in who was Gorbachev he came out of nowhere to me and it was a beautiful moment in time have you thought about reaching out to him and
0: having an interview with him or no well, he's, I mean he,
1: he knows what's going on I mean would the Americans accept him as as an arbitrator here
2: can you pull up a picture of him right now, Mikhail Gorbachev? If you, had, if you had George Schultz and
1: yeah. Gorbachev, and if George was still alive, they would be the perfect older men.
2: Is there anyone in America right now that is a perfect the statesman that could could maybe step up? Well, it's not going to be Biden, according no, to you. No.
1: Yeah, maybe Obama. You think Obama? Maybe, although he's, you know, he's so he's so aware of the popular will that he would he would he, would he bucket. Uh, So
0: we're coming to the end of the interview, and I got to tell you, uh, this last uh, however long we've been together felt like five minutes. What makes you very interesting is the following. So someone's listening to you. The audience is like, oh, you know, he he just took... uh, a liberal Lyndon Johnson, he, he says he's a bad guy. Oh, no, 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 no. He said Kennedy is, no, no, Reagan's bad. No, but Hillary Clinton, he threw her under. But he says Obama's good. But maybe Obama's not. But then maybe, you know, oh, Putin, but, Biden. But, but the, the beautiful thing about this is the fact that somebody cannot put you in any box. So nobody can say he's just a conservative, he's a Republican, he's a Democrat, he's an independent. No, you went all over the place. So I hope the audience is being very fair. And folks, this is what I would suggest to you. Share this with others and watch it with your family. Sit down and watch this with your family and say, what do you think about what he has to say with the amount of experience he has? Outside of that, i got two other things I want to challenge you to do. <laughs> number one, Ukraine on Fire officially was taken off of YouTube, I think, uh, 20, uh, uh, two days ago. It was taken off of YouTube, but you can watch it on other platforms. Go watch that. And then number two is go buy his book uh, uh, that's out the story of uh, uh, Chasing uh, the Light. Yeah, Chasing the Light, the story of uh, uh, Oliver Stone. Go get that as well. And then outside of that, uh, man, this was a treat. I got to tell you, this was such a thank treat you. having you on here. Thank you, thank you so JFK much for coming Revisit It. For sure. Those are, I'm, I'm posting all okay, of that, but okay. go watch all of that. Uh, Oliver
1: Stone, thank you for coming out. Gee, well, it's been fun talking to you, and thank you for your open mind. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank this you. has been great. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Adam thank and you. Tom. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye.